you have your Bible this morning, you can join in reading the text, uh, Romans 8, verse 18. If you don't, you can uh, find a blue book, a blue copy of the scriptures uh, in the pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 944. I'm going to read Romans 8, verse 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together as we uh, come to God's word this morning. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Be with us now, we pray through Christ. Amen. Um, Some of you know that in two weeks, there will be what could be the best 24 hours of TV the entire year. Um, You might be wondering what that is. Uh, That would be the 24 consecutive hours of the movie A Christmas Story being shown on TBS every year from 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve until 7 p.m. on Christmas Day, the movie A Christmas Story is shown, and you could watch it 12 times if you desired over that time. Um, If you've not seen that movie and not familiar with it, that's exactly what you should do this afternoon. But I'll explain it to you if you aren't familiar with it. It's a movie that's set in the 1940s in this fictional town in Indiana. And it's about a boy named Ralphie who's nine years old. And the entire movie is about his pursuit of a certain Christmas gift. That gift is an official Red Ryder carbine action 200 range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. It's all about his pursuit of this BB gun that he wants more than anything else. It's his pursuit of that from start to finish and his struggle to have to wait in that time until that gift comes. And he's got to fight against his mother who doesn't want him to have it, um, his teacher who tells him he'll shoot his eye out, and then even when he goes to visit Santa, Santa also says, you'll shoot your eye out. So he has to overcome all of these things and he is, he's torn up with this anticipation and this waiting, and this expectation of this great gift that's coming. And I would guess that some of you boys and girls in here know the exact number of days until Christmas right now. 
You could probably tell me how many we have left. And have that same sense of anticipation, but also that same difficulty of having to wait. You've still got two weeks. Even longer than that, you've got to wait. Um, that picture of waiting that, that is illustrated so well in that movie, and even as we think about the anticipation of something great coming like Christmas, is a great picture of that tension of Advent. Um, if, you, if you remember, what, what Advent actually means is just coming or arrival. And so Advent is this, there, there's this tension inherent in Advent because on the one hand, we are celebrating and looking back to Jesus' first coming. And we look to that and celebrate that and rejoice in that. But at the same time, we look forward to this with this sense of anticipation and expectation and longing for his second coming. And so Advent is, is this uh, season of tension where we recognize that, that things are, are good but not yet the way they're supposed to be. And so that's some of what we're getting at in this uh, sermon series called Redeeming the Whole. Darwin talked last week about the restoration of our relationship to God. What we're looking at this week is our relationship to creation and, and, and that tension that is still there for us. And I think what's so good about celebrating Advent is that that tension is actually the tension inherent in the Christian life. I want you to think about this from Paul's perspective and what he said in Romans to this point. We're in Romans 8, but he said a few other things leading up to this point. He said, for example, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He tells the person who has faith in Jesus that you have been set free from the power of sin so that you are no longer a slave to sin. He said that you are adopted into the family of God. You are a child of God. He said that you are indwelt with the Spirit and the very resurrection life of Jesus is now your life and at work in you. So you hear all those incredibly glorious promises that God has made, these things that are true of you now, if you have put your faith in Jesus. And yet, at the same time, we might rightly ask questions like this. If all that's true, then why do God's children still suffer? Why do we still die? Why is our work still so difficult? These are all parts of the curse that that we are still feeling in these very profound and real ways. And and yet God has said these incredible things are true of us now. And yet we still long to experience the fullness of them. And we live in that tension. That tension between what we have now and what we're still longing for. And so we have this sense of an ache within us that longs for this world to be made right. Here's how Paul responds to that question. And this is why this passage is so appropriate for Advent. He says this in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So what he says is that this suffering is very, very real. But the glory to come is just as real and actually shines brighter than that suffering does. So this is for us and for creation. And what he has said, though, is as we are longing for this glory to be revealed, we have to wait. 
And that is where we find ourselves in the Christian life. And the question that I want to ask and answer this morning from this passage is how do we live in that tension? How do we wait? And the answer that Paul gives us is that we wait with creation by groaning under the curse and by hoping for the glory to come. So those are our two points this morning, that we wait with creation by groaning under the curse and we wait with creation by hoping in the glory to come. (coughs) Excuse me. So first, we wait with creation by groaning. If you look back in this passage, um, one of the most vivid words that's used over and over again is that of groaning. You look at verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And throughout, we'll see that the creation experiences this, and then also we ourselves. Look at verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly. And why, why is this case? Why, why must Paul describe this, this situation for creation as groaning? What is it? Well, the main reason he gives us is verses 20 and 21. If you glance back there, you'll see this. He says that the creation was subjected to futility. And in verse 21, that the creation is now in bondage to corruption. It's enslaved to be corrupt. This is now the case for the world. He's saying that the created world, the created order around us is broken. The world is not now the way it's supposed to be. And so we would rightly ask, why? Why is the world like this now? When it wasn't this way at some point. And the answer to that question is really the entire Bible. The, the Bible begins with, uh, with one God who is love himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who out of a great sense of love has created a physical world. And, 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 and this physical world is described as good in and of itself because God made it. And he made a man and a woman to then rule and reign over the created order in a way that would show who God is. So they they would show who he is in their work and that they would reflect his goodness, his kindness, and his love to the world. That was how things were originally. The world was good. Work was the way it was supposed to be. The land brought forth fruit in the way that it was supposed to. Work didn't have this sense of toil and meaninglessness to it. It was all the way it was supposed to be, and this world was absent of any sort of sickness or death or mourning. That's not where we live now, right? And what happened in that seemingly, uh, that that, that so simple of a moment when the man and the woman ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that they plunged this world into this state now of sin and and corruption. And it's important, if you're here visiting, uh, maybe aren't quite familiar with uh, a lot of Christianity, sometimes when you hear the word sin, it's easy to equate that with just an issue of guilt before God. As if that's all that sin did, was really just break our relationship with God the Creator. Sin did that, but it's way bigger than that. The effects of sin are that now this entire world is broken. Death is now a part of this world. Sickness is a part of this world. Work becomes toilsome. The land doesn't bring forth the fruit that it's supposed to in the way that it's supposed to anymore. That's how widespread the effects of sin are. 
And here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones describes this in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. That's what Paul is talking about when he says that the creation has been subjected to futility. We live under the curse. And it extends well beyond just your relationship to the Creator. And now we live in a place where things are not the way it's supposed to be, and we are groaning because of it. And I know there, there's not a need to even describe the ways that we groan, but I want to just give you a few examples of how we feel this in our lives, this experience of groaning. We feel this experience of groaning when we get that phone call from a friend that says you have had a family member who was killed in a car accident. You have this feeling of groaning when you go to a job where you're not being compensated for what you're doing, where you have a boss who doesn't appreciate what what you're doing, and the work itself feels meaningless to you. We groan under that. We groan in the midst of our struggles with depression and that sense of darkness that won't subside. We groan in huge ways when we long to be pregnant and to carry a baby to term, but we keep getting the devastating news that we have lost another child. We groan under the effects of this curse that is our broken world now. And I think what is so uh, uniquely painful, I think, about these experiences, when you start talking about sickness and death, is that it bumps up against any sense of control that we have over our lives. You can't beat death. And we are helpless in its face. And so all we can do in that is, is to actually groan. And I know some of you are, are in the middle of this right now in a profound way. What I want us to know, though, too, is to recognize that there is a real temptation to avoid this groaning as well. And you know this when you're in the midst of something that is immensely painful and almost feels, feels so overwhelming that you have to do anything you can to, to, to do away with it. And this might look like kind of like a numbing out or trying to escape from that sense of groaning. Like, I can't enter into this. I need to do something. I need to buy more things. I need to do something that's going to keep me from having to feel this. I need to get on Facebook and just pretend like all this is not happening right now. But at other times, we do this by just trying to downplay our sense of groaning and act like things really aren't that bad. Try and put a spin on it to make us kind of be those eternal optimists where everything is fine. We don't need to act like this is as bad as it is. And so we end up saying things that aren't true, like death is just natural. Death is just a part of life. That's not true. That's not how we should view this sense of groaning. There's a philosopher named Nicholas Wolterstorff who... um, He lost his 25-year-old son in a mountaineering accident. And he ended up writing this book that is, uh, it's the best book that I've ever read on grief, and it's also painful to read because of uh, how real it all is. 
And this book is called Lament for a Son. And in this one section, he's talking about the temptation that all of us have to downplay this groaning. To act like this really isn't that bad. And here's what he says. He says, but please, don't say it's not really so bad. Because it is. Death is awful. Demonic. If you think your task as a comforter is to tell me that really all things considered, it's not so bad. You do not sit with me in my grief, but place yourself off in the distance away from me. And the problem with either of these ways of trying to deal with grief, whether it's escape or trying to just downplay the reality of it, aside from the fact that we are just denying what's real, is that this is not the way God grieves, nor is it the way that God calls us to face that groaning. So what God does is not pretend that the groaning and the grief aren't real. He never asks you to do that, not once. He doesn't pretend like this world is as it's supposed to be. What he does, and this is the significance of Advent, is that he actually comes into the groaning, and he groans with us in Jesus. This is why in John 11, where Jesus is standing at the tomb of Lazarus, the, 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 the way it's translated is that it says he was deeply moved, when in fact, what that means is he was angry at death. He was angry at what had happened to his friend Lazarus. And so, three verses later then, he weeps at death. That's how God deals with groaning. He enters into it in that way. This is why in the Psalms we have this incredible section of these Psalms of lament, which say things like, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you allow me to suffer like I am right now? It's why Jesus can say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. This is how God enters into our own groaning. And so to groan and lament that this world is not the way it's supposed to be is actually a profoundly Christian thing to do. It is a Christ-like thing to do to say this is not the way it's supposed to be. And this is one of the reasons that Advent is so important for us. This is what Bonhoeffer says about Advent. He says the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. This is what it means to groan and to live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. This is what Paul calls us to in this passage. But it's not all he says. It's not all there is to waiting in this tension. It's a very real part, but that's not all. He says also that we wait with creation by hoping in the glory to come. And you see this, uh, the same theme that's repeated over and over in these verses. There's hope over and over again. So in verse 20, where he says that creation was subjected to futility, but he says it was subjected in hope. It was subjected in hope. And then he says the same thing about Christians later on in verses 24 and 25, where he says five different times, hope, hope, hope. In verse 18, he says, of course, we shouldn't downplay the reality of this broken world. But the suffering that we are enduring now pales, <coughs> excuse me, pales in comparison 
with that glory that is to be revealed. He's saying that what is coming is so great that even with the severity, seriousness, immense pain and suffering of death and sickness in this world, that pales in comparison to the glory that is coming. So what is it that we're longing for? What is this hope that Paul puts forward? What are we hoping for? Well, he says the same thing in in a few different ways. In verse 18, he says it's the glory to be revealed. Uh, In verse 21, when he's talking about creation specifically, he says it's the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then verse 23, about us, we, the children of God, we're awaiting our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. So all these things are saying something similar, and it's this. The world is going to be made right again when we as humans are restored to this rule and reign over creation in a way that shows God's character. Now that doesn't come fully and finally until Jesus returns and we are placed in that role again and the world is made what it is supposed to be in the new heavens and the new earth. But that is the hope. That's what this glory is that will be revealed. That's what creation is longing for is for humanity to be back in the right position of ruling and reigning in a way that is God-honoring and showing forth who He is to the whole world. And it includes us. It includes our bodies. That's what happens in verse 23. We're waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And and, uh, you might wonder at this point, doesn't Paul say elsewhere, and John certainly says this, that we are already now sons of God? And the answer to that is, yes, that's right. We are now sons of God. But we need to think a little bit about what what Paul means when he talks about adoption. If you think about this, we are legally now children of God. We have the status of son of God now. And all of the rich benefits that come with that. But there's a transformational aspect of that too, where you and I are still more and more growing into that family likeness. There will come a day, and this is what Paul is speaking of in verse 23, where we will inhabit these resurrected bodies and we will be fully shown to be children of God. Where it will not be just a status, it will not be just God's disposition to us, it will be that we ourselves are fully remade as sons of God. And that is what we're longing for. That is why we want this so badly. But Paul's big point is this. There will come a day where there will be no more sickness, there will be no more death, there will be no more tears, nor crying, nor mourning. The world will be made whole again, and we ourselves will be made whole again. We will be restored to God, to one another, and to to the world around us, such that now our, our work will be restored at that time. This is how Isaiah describes what this day will be in Isaiah 65. He says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And here, verse 20, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. That is coming when Jesus returns. 
And that is what our hope is. And that is what Advent is about. It's longing for Jesus' return. It's crying out to Him and praying that He would come back and complete His work in this world so that we would be enjoying every aspect of the kingdom of God in all its fullness. But I know, too, that that kind of hope can seem sort of pie in the sky by and by and not have any real impact on us now. I know that maybe some of us struggle to groan rightly. Probably more of us struggle to hope. Because it's a lot easier to despair. It's a lot easier to be cynical. It's a lot easier to look around at the world and go, I can't even imagine what this world would be like if sin, death, and sickness were no longer a part of it. And so that undercuts our hope. But here, here's what I want to say. I, I wanna, I've got a friend who, who says this. This is his outlook. He says, I tend, to, I tend to expect the worst, and then I'm either right or pleasantly surprised. That's an outlook on life that is not faithful to, of course, what God says to you, but it's the reality for a lot of us. Let me tell you what hope is not and what b- biblical hope is not meant by. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not a hallmark sort of sentimentality. It's not an emotion that we just uh, try and conjure up and that we really struggle to live in. Biblical hope is something that is certain and it is grounded in God's promise. And so what, what does this hope look like? How does it play itself out in our lives? What is this hope that we are called to inhabit? few things that are said in this passage. One is that hope looks like eager expectation that is grounded in certainty. Eager expectation that is grounded in certainty. Look at verses 18 and 19. You get this incredible picture of the sort of eagerness that creation itself actually has. You have this word that's, that's translated eager longing of creation. This is actually a picture of of creation that is waiting on tiptoe. Uh, Some translators will say it's like creation craning its neck because it wants to so badly see the revelation of this glory when things will be made right. This is sort of the, uh, these are parents at the school play craning their necks to get around other people and get close enough to take the picture that you want. You long to see it and you have this eager expectation about it. And so that's how creation's hope is is personified in this passage. But he also talks about our hope because it has that same character. He he says in, in verse 23 that we wait eagerly because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And I know that that's kind of a weird phrase for us. And it's tempting to overlook it. But this is actually one of the most significant things that's said in this passage. What he means when he says first fruits is that he's bringing up this image of an agricultural scenario where you have a harvest that's coming, but the first fruits are just this beginning portion of it. And it's where you get a foretaste of what is coming in the rest of the harvest. And it's also a guarantee of the type of harvest that will come when you bring the rest of the crops in. What Paul is saying here is that the Spirit functions as that guarantee and as that foretaste for us. That the Spirit is that down payment, that certainty, that guarantee 
that the brokenness of this world will be restored and that we ourselves will be restored. It's as certain as the Spirit indwelling us. And at the same time, Paul recognizes that that is still hard to believe and hard to hope. (coughs) Excuse me. He says in verses 24 and 25 that we are to hope with a patient endurance. That that is what we're to hold on to in the midst of this. So why can we do this? Why can we have this hope if it's not this sentimental sort of feeling? It's not wishful thinking. What is biblical hope? Biblical hope is grounded in the reality of Jesus' death and his resurrection. So that what Paul can say is that things will be made right, and I am so certain of that because it's the same thing that rose Jesus from the grave. The same redemptive work is happening when all things will be made new. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, this guaranteed that this is not some sort of wishful thinking, but rather that the entire world will be made new and we ourselves will be made new as well. It's as certain as Jesus' death and his resurrection. And that's why you can live in this tension between suffering and glory. That's why that we can continue to have hope in the midst of circumstances that cause so much groaning. It's because we are united to the one who has experienced more suffering than we will ever suffer, more groaning than we will ever groan, and yet has still entered into this glory that is to come. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are united to him this morning, and his future is your future. We will share in that glory that is to be revealed on that last day. And so, in the meantime, as we wait, we follow Jesus on this path. He enters into our groaning and he groans with us. But just as certainly as we suffer with him, so will we be glorified with him. There's a day coming when everything sad will come untrue. But until that day, what Paul says is that we wait, we groan, and we hope. Pray for us. We would do that. Father, we thank you that in your word you acknowledge the full reality of our broken world, the effects that our sin have have wreaked over all things. But Lord, we thank you that in Christ... We see that our God shares in this suffering, bears this suffering, and dies uh, for this. And we thank you that he has been raised, and we long for his return and pray that he would come. And we pray in his name. Amen.